You're going to want to vaccinate for this one. It's Mikey J on KGUP Presents. Mothers, lock up your daughters. It's time to see Mikey J. Mikey J. Are you f***ing with me? We're dealing with one sick son of a bitch. How much false can you find? And there's lots in history. I came across the images of the 1893 Chicago World Exposition. And it blew my mind because it looked like ancient Rome in the middle of downtown Chicago. And as I looked at it further, well, here's another one in Philadelphia. Here's another one in St. Louis, in Buffalo, in San Francisco. And then as soon as they were done, they tore them all down and threw them in the garbage. That just told me there's something wrong with all of these. The story of the expositions is, is a gigantic lie. So many things about the 1800s that seem strange and weird, right as this sort of period ends of unbelievable strangeness, and all of a sudden these fairs spring up all over the world with impossible buildings, buildings we're talking about, which are colossal structures. How are you doing this fine evening? I'm Mikey J, and you're watching and listening to KGUP Presents. Now, I don't have a cool catchphrase because, um, you know, that kind of describes my personality because, you know, for the most part, I'm pretty quiet, but that doesn't sound very catchy, like the very quiet Mikey J or... He hates social media. It's Mikey J. You know, thank goodness for Nicole B because she's been doing my intros this past year. And, you know, back in my old podcast days, uh, Christopher Colt used to do my old intros and he would say stuff like, he's clean cut and with perfect posture. It's Mikey J. But, you know, back in those days, I wore a suit everywhere I went and it was kind of like my signature look and, you know, just being suited up. And those were, those were great times. But um, now I just like wearing regular t-shirts just like this. And, um, you know, I wanted to have a preface before we bring on our guest and, um, you know, because uh, I wanted to share something with you all um, with um, Mr. McCoskey, because I think uh, it's, it's irrelevant to the conversation. And I don't know about you, but I think people have a tendency of like prejudging everyone that we meet, whether we like to admit it or not. And uh, if, even if it's just for a split second, I think it's just human nature and so, you know, societies have kind of subconsciously programmed us to think this certain way. And um, I, I say this because, you know, like a week ago, my perception of Howdy McCoskey was completely different. Um, you know, I only knew him from his like videos about, um, you know, spiritual warfare and, and um, uh, like the, exposing the expositions um and the the egyptian uh because he wrote a book called um power of then revealing the egypt's lost wisdom and then he's known for his recent book which is called uh falling for truth but um during this whole panoramic as i like to call it uh, i stumbled across you know like i said a bunch of his videos uh, where he speaks about the world fairs like the chicago of 1893 uh the the World Fair in Philadelphia in 1867, San Francisco in 1894, and 1915. And then uh, he mentions the, the World Fair of Buffalo in 1901, St. Louis in 1904. There, there's literally dozens of World Fairs that happened during the later half of the 1800s. 1800s. And the official stories, if you, if you do your own investigation, uh, you will discover that the stories surrounding the fairs just don't really add up. Um, and you might be thinking, you know, a big deal, it's just a fair, but 
if you look into the official stories, the official history, you'll, you'll find photos and these building structures and these fairs were gigantic grounds. They're unlike any of the fairs that we're used to seeing today in our local cities. Um, it's as if ancient Rome was here long before the, the, the 13 col col colonies first uh, were formed here. And then uh, once these fairs are finished, I mean, they were completely torn down and destroyed. So I find it to be one of the most fascinating topics. And it's one of the one main reasons why I wanted to invite Howdy Mikoski here on great, uh, KGUP Presents. You know, he's, just, he's not just an historian. He's also a spiritualist. So he's got a great perspective on life and religion and especially the truth about, you know, the Cathars, the Knights Templar, the Holy Grail, Stonehenge. And uh, I hope we have time, but I'd like to talk about um, Plato's cave, spiritual wisdom, spiritual warfare that we're currently under. And his latest book talks about talks a lot about reality and all that good stuff. And uh, before I get ahead of myself too far, um, you guys should look him up. Search, uh, go in the search bar, look up how to McCoskey talks, or you can click the link in the description. And without further ado. Uh, let's bring him on. It's uh, Mr. Howdy McCoskey. How are you doing today? I am actually doing great. It's been two weeks of no rain here, so it is rain today, which means I don't have to water the crop. <laughs> I know how that feels. It's uh, we're, we're here in Dallas, Texas, and it's been raining ever since the uh, the snowmageddon. And it's like oh, every, yeah. every three days, it was just raining and it was just miserable. And it means it, it, it kind of makes you wonder if they're just manipulating the weather. You know, I mean, I've I've seen I've come across so many articles about that, and uh, it's definitely true. I mean, they, they're you know they use frequencies and these sulfates to control the weather, and I was like, when is it going to end? You know, <laughs> but it, the summer's finally here and it's starting to get nice. Yeah. So, where would you like to go? Where would you like to talk about? Uh, yeah. Um, I was contemplating where to begin because you know I, I think you've had many stages of awakenings. I, I think over the last, ever since you wrote your first first book, and um, I guess we can start at the beginning and and just kind of like you know how what was your first awakening? I guess you can call that. Uh, I well, okay. Let's we'll we'll, we'll try to. Eat. I'll try to define some of these terms for people because these terms get thrown around a lot, and I, I, right. I have problems sometimes with the word. So uh, I've tried to use words like realization. For me, mm -hmm. that's something within reality itself. So with, within the, what, what I see is a dream. So something that you understand about how things operate here, or if you do A, the result will be B, those kind of things. That's about a realization. It, uh, it doesn't change who you are, but it changes how you operate in your life. Uh, what I would call an awakening would be when you actually step out of all of the things you had ever believed to be true, uh, including your belief in yourself. And when, when you step away from all of that uh, and see that you are something beyond all of it, that would, be an, that would be an awakening. And then there's a long potential process of, of integrating that and dealing with it because it's very, it's not as fun and happy as the books try to make it sound. It's very, very difficult. So I would say my first realization, if we, if we take it, if I take the language correct, would have been in uh, 1994, 
I had an ex-girlfriend who was murdered. And when, when that happened, there was an instantaneous, like, like first I went, um, I guess the word you would describe is uh, I kind of went blank. Like I literally sort of blanked out. I remember I was cooking on the stove actually. And if it wasn't, if it wasn't somebody didn't come and move the pot off the stove, I would have burned the house down because I literally had lost the sense of my surroundings and what was going on when I, when I got the news and saw the news story on, on television. And, uh, but what started there was an inner process of saying, uh, I had always believed, or I've been told, right? Society tells us there's certain steps you follow. You go to school, you be a nice person, you work really hard, you get your degree, then you go get a job, and then you go get married, and then you have kids, and then you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this. And this woman that I knew was running her life as perfect as you possibly could. She was literally the catchphrase of society, perfect. And here she was, 23, dead. And I had to step back at that point and say, okay, is what society has what society's been feeding me all of this time? Is that true or not? Because here's a person who followed it perfectly and it didn't, you know, it didn't work at all for her. And this began what, what you would call inner introspection, right? Like real spiritual work is not about going external. It's not about trying to be happy. It's not about trying to get better. It's not about trying to improve yourself. It's about looking at what you've what you've come to believe about everything and start to ask, well, why do I believe that? And that's how it started. That was the first part for me was, was after her death, it started that process. Wow. Um, did you already have a degree in, in uh, history or, or how, how did that all begin? Yeah, I had that when uh, like she was uh, someone I knew in university who I dated at the end of my university career. And yeah, I went uh, when I had finished high school, I had sort of two options. Um, I was very creative back then, uh, and I uh, I was a comedian for 15 years, actually. Uh, people wouldn't know that now if you watch my videos or even listen to this talk I'm having with you. I'm not very funny anymore, you know. <laughs> but back then, I was very funny and creative. So I had these two lines of, of possibility at the end of high school. Did I want to go to university and take something like history, which I really loved and loved to study and and uh, play hockey or would i like to do something creative maybe go into screenwriting or documentary filmmaking or something like that so i had this very difficult choice of sort of a very two completely different kind of choices i chose history i'm not sure that was the right choice overall for the happiness of my life but i did and while i was a bit of a you could call me a bit of a jerk from the standpoint of i i didn't believe everything the professors tried to tell me, but looking back now, I can't believe I didn't ask way more questions and bring up way more problems. I, I, I accept it as probably everyone in every every field of study does. We accept so much so easily because the person in front of us is presented as an authority or the book is presented as an authority and we just say, oh, well, they must know what they're talking about and we don't, we stop questioning. And I did a lot of that um, through my university career. Hmm. And um, so you you going to Egypt because uh, after you've you know you had your degree and everything you went to go study in Egypt. Um, how did that change your your perception of like history and stuff? Was that well, the beginning point? 
Well, what happened was is actually after I finished my degree, uh, the same or right around that same time, my father had stolen all of my money, and so I was basically destitute in the world. And then I had this, you know, my, my, with the girlfriend being murdered, I ran off to Australia for a year because it was the, kind of the farthest you could get away from North America was go to Australia. So I ran away from things, but of course everything followed you, right? You can't run away from your problems; your problems just follow you. And so my inner pain couldn't couldn't hide from me. And when I came back and was trying really, really hard to function in the world, I moved back to Toronto, trying to be a comedian, trying to write scripts, trying to do whatever I could do. My life was spiraling horribly into a, into a black hole. And, uh, and it got to the point where I thought, I think killing myself is the best option. That uh, it was, it was, life was so bad. And it, was, it wasn't just life was bad. I noticed I was becoming like mean and manipulative. I was like, I was actually manipulating people, the, the women I was dating, I was, I was treating really poorly. And I, I remember one day, I kind of just looked in the mirror, like, what's happened to me? Like, how did I get like this? This is not, this is not the person I've always known. I don't like this. And I, my, my, I was so upset with everything. I thought, okay, I'll kill myself. But I couldn't come up with a nice, clean way to do it where the person who had to find the body was going to be, you know, have an easy time of it. So I thought, okay, well, until I can figure that out, I'm not doing it. About two days later was my birthday, and a video came on on uh, Pyramid Building. And it was like, so you talk about awakenings. Well, there's another weird thing I've had in my life, and that was, that's what I would classify as computer downloads. Moments where like literally the universe stuck a USB stick in my head and just fired like tons of information in there beyond what I could fathom. And that's what happened when I watched this video. I mean, there was nothing in the video itself that was telling me anything, but it was like it was like a lightning bolt hit my head. And at the end of that, I just said, I have to get to ancient Egypt and I have to be in the Great Pyramid because it's going to start answering questions. But before I did that, I took about four years to, to really study um, ancient Egypt in a really deep way. I took some time with some native medicine men. I took time with a, a Zen monk in, from Korea, um, with some Qigong teachers from China. I mean, I went Anywhere I could go where I thought somebody had answers for me or, or had some information, I, I went and listened to them and, and, and did what they suggested, found out for myself, did it work or didn't it work? And by the time I got to Egypt, finally, after what I guess it was five or six years, I'd been to Mexico, uh, studied the Mayan stuff there. And then when I got to Egypt, there was uh, another computer download. So literally, I went from one download, which was like almost, I then spent seven years, you might say, catching up to it. Like I wasn't learning in the seven years. I was just reopening what the download put into me. Then I went in the Great Pyramid the first time and it happened again. <laughs> Bizarrely, I had this like, this, this, uh, uh, the best way I can describe it is I split in two when I walked into the Great Pyramid. Oh, you don't walk, you crawl in, right? But as I was crawling into the king's chamber, I was also already in the king's chamber watching me come in. So it, uh, and it was so disorienting that I forgot about it for a long time. I literally just forgot the experience. I remembered the download part of it and the change that was happening, but I'd forgotten this experience for a while because it was so, it just indicated that the person I've seen in the mirror all my life is that's not me. I've got to be something else because I can see myself. 
So this really also began this process of shaking up so much. I'll, I'll finally answer your question now, which was that entire process of studying ancient Egypt indicated to me that the archaeologists are not anywhere telling the truth, that the ancient world was an unbelievable place of power, of knowledge, of wisdom, of mathematics, of geometry, of energy, of uh, balance, of all sorts of these things. And the the what is there does not in any way match the story of how they try to tell you the things were created. What do you think that is? Do you think they just don't want people to discover that they have all this power within within ourselves? Yes, I would say that would be, I, I had to, I asked the same question myself. Like once it became clear that when you see, uh, I took some people a few years ago to Egypt and show them there's, there's for just, there's so many great stones all over the place to tell a story, but there's some on the Giza plateau that are perfectly uh, rounded sculpted granite. Literally you would need like a diamond laser cutter today to be able to make the kind of surf, the surface curves and the smoothness of the surface. And of course they'll tell you this was made with copper tools, which is you know impossible because you need a diamond laser cutting tool to do it today. And once you begin to recognize that anybody with any kind of sight would have to obviously, it's just so obvious that the story can't be right, then it obviously means somewhere at the top, that's the story they want. And yes, if if the human being, and this will take us later into the world's fairs and what came out of those, but if the average human being thinks that the people in the past were primitive and stupid and savages and you know just lucky to survive, but we are so fantastic and advanced and great because of our iPhones and our washing machines and our and our you know cars, then we won't ever start thinking, hey, wait a minute. Maybe these people in the past lived in a completely different way than we did. Maybe they live with much more power and way more healthy and happier. Why aren't we doing that? And that's the thing that the, the, the group that controls everything here, they don't want people looking to times when things may have been different in a much more positive way for humans. And like you say, that that doesn't come from aliens landing. It, does, it comes <laughs> from, quite simply, the inner power of the human being, the inner power of the mind, when that gets actually released turned into something really directed and positive the, the 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 world can be quite a different place and that's what i think is trying to be taken away from people yeah i i used to watch ancient aliens a lot and mm. uh, it you know for a while i was just buying into it you know aliens did this aliens did that and right. it conflicted with my upbringing because you know i went to church up until i was about 12 years old so my entire from two to 12, that's all I knew was just religion. And so we would touch on different subjects and talk about um, the pyramids and, and all this stuff. And it, I had always wondered how the heck were we able to build these massive structures with, with just slaves? Which, you know, they would just show people with whips and, you know, we're supposed to believe that we hauled all this material and had this precision you know, and I'm just a little kid, so I just kind of kept my mouth shut, but it was always in the back of my mind. And then, you know, ancient aliens is like, oh, it was alien. You know, there's this whole possibility that aliens were here once long ago. And, you know, after a while, I stopped believing all those stories. And um, then I kind of stumbled across you and then this whole Tartaria stuff and mud floods. And that's making a lot more sense to me now. <laughs> yeah, the... Um... <laughs> 
the uh, I mean, actually, Ancient Aliens isn't that it's it's a fairly decent show from the standpoint of that they take you to a lot of sites around the world. There's places I had never even heard of. I studied this stuff for 20 years, and I'd sometimes watch a place go, "What is this? How did I not know about this place?" You know. But then if you if you just take the information as information, and then like you say, don't have to agree with the assumption that the show produces, then it's fine. Um, but like anything, as soon as there's a as soon as there's a non-human answer for it. You have to start wondering why is that? Um, because why why can't humans have done this? Why what's 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 wrong with the with the human power that they can't you know can't do these kind of things? And like I say, I spent time with some Native Indian medicine men, like not the not the ones that you meet in a workshop, like the real ones who still live on the reserve and don't go anywhere. And you know, and some of the stuff these men and women can do was pretty damn spectacular. And uh, and so it was also by meeting people like this that helped me to realize that what I was feeling and learning about the ancient world was obviously very true. And a whole lot of it has to do with, with understanding the use of energy in this realm. I don't want to make this sound new agey or, or something like that. I just mean from the standpoint of harnessing harnessing the energy that's here in really useful ways and I think that's what these ancient sites were doing. They, they, if I, I come to, I've come to see the Earth. It doesn't matter whether it's round or it's flat. It doesn't really matter, right? But I've come to see the Earth as like uh, the same as the human body. So it has energy meridians that run through it. And just like an acupuncturist, they know where to put the needle. If you've got a sore knee, it's nowhere near your knee. It's somewhere else, but it, it helps the the knee, right? By hitting the right meridian. I think these ancient sites were similar things. They're like acupuncture needles placed on the earth, which are doing things to the energy of the meridians. And if you can go to the site with the right, let's call it, uh, I don't call it frequency either. Again, it sounds new aging. If you go with the right mindset, you can tap into the very same thing that they Uh-oh. Uh-oh, we lost him. Some form. So it's like the possibility is still there for people uh, today. Uh, it says my internet connection is unstable. Can you hear me no. okay? I hear you fine. Okay. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah, I've been having all kinds of issues since yesterday and I, I can't figure out what it is but um it could be because you're talking to me <laughs> yeah i mean some of these com- these conversations are, are kind of taboo and so you know it's just like a, what napoleon bodaparte said he uh he said history is a lie ag- agreed upon mm-hmm. and anytime a a vic- victorious country it comes in and, and wipes you know wins a battle or wins a war you know Parts of history have been erased, and uh, we don't know how far back our true history goes. Because through wars, I, I I've been finding out that you know bits and pieces are just being hidden and destroyed. To be honest, now I, I used to think okay, because I had done the the Egypt stuff, and I had thought, and from that perspective, well, okay, the ancient world is a complete lie. That's that's totally wrong, you know, completely. But modern history, say the last three or four hundred years, I still kind of believed that. Mm-hmm. Sort of. You know, I still believed, okay, there's a Napoleon, there was a Battle of Waterloo, there was this, there was Gettysburg, there was, you know, whatever. I believed all that. And I may not believe the interpretation, like you say, but I wouldn't have ever questioned that there was one. After I went through all the stuff in the World's Fairs 
And after I saw that just 130, 40 years ago, everything being, everything being presented about that period on every level is a complete and total lie. And as I began to see that everything that was based on in the 1800s before that was a lie, I now think pretty much all history, say before the 1950s, almost guaranteed is like in the lie category. And then since the 1950s, you know, you're probably sitting at maybe a half and half truth and reality kind of thing. And so we're, we're still not even batting over 50% with what we've got now. But I would yeah, I would now say all the stuff I used to take true, um, I, I would at least, you know, if someone told me a hey, World War One didn't happen or something, I would have, you know, you're crazy. But now I'd have to go, actually, I don't know. I mean, really, mm-hmm. I, I, I actually don't know. And even by trying to study certain pieces of information, it really, maybe it did, maybe it didn't, maybe it happened, happened sort of, but didn't happen. So it, it has completely revamped my, my ideas. And why is that important? And somebody says, okay, well, why does it matter? Because the present that we all live is based on history. Whatever is happening in our present, particularly the way government and society is structured, when somebody says, well, why do we have that? Why do we have a government? Why do we have, why is our school system like this? Why does our law system operate like this? There will always be an answer of, well, 200, 300 years ago, the world was like this. Some people made these changes or there was this war, this thing changed, these things developed, and here's why we have our society. Oh, okay, I understand. So history is actually the foundation point of everything you do or experience in your society. And if you can't change your society, if the history is locked solid, it's really strange. If The, the, the history actually beats the change of the society. But as soon as you can potentially change history, then all of a sudden say, well, then why are we doing this in the law system if if history was really like this? This is crazy. Things would change immediately. And that's why the control of history and, and the control of what we would call a mythological narrative is so unbelievably important because if you have the right narrative, then that's how you create the exact world, uh, the exact society that is presented now. Wow. So that's a good segue because you did mention the expositions, the world fairs. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you stumble across that whole um, rabbit hole, <laughs> if you will? Yeah, it's interesting uh, because I had I had never heard of them before uh, 2019, other than I knew there had been one in like Vancouver in 2010 that I didn't go to, and I remember Montreal had one in '67. This big, you know, the baseball team was named after it, and I knew they were they were big events, but I didn't really. Okay. Expositions, big deal. And I was in Florence in 2019 and I was studying the cathedrals. I was going through looking for how are these things built as energy structures? How does the energy work in the cathedrals? And I was seeing them, beginning to see them that, oh yeah, these aren't religious structures. These are actually energy creation devices. And once you kind of knew where to go in the in the various cathedrals, it's almost like you you would get healed instantly. Like if I if my back was sore, my knee was bad, and I just stood in the right place, boom, it would be gone. Uh, it was just it, the pain would just disappear. It was just it was so I was really studying this hard. And again, I had another one of these downloads. I didn't know what it was, but it was like again, I just the bolt hit, the ball lightning hit me, and I came back home, and I was studying again these cathedrals, and somehow I bumped into one of these World's Fair videos about on time, maybe by. It might have been one by John Levy. He had kind of been one of the sort of the originators of this, um, a lot of this material. Uh, but it was on the Chicago Exposition of 1893. And I started looking at the buildings. 
And it was just beyond staggering. And of course, they were all cathedral-like, but on massive scales. And then as I began reading that, they were doing this again and again and again all over the world. The Chicago World's Fair was 700 acres. The St. Louis Exposition was 1,200 acres of buildings, all supposed to be built in two years to have this giant exposition that loses millions of dollars. None of them ever made any money. And then as soon as they were over, the buildings were all destroyed and chucked into landfills. And then they went to a new place and did it again. And once I had studied this for about three weeks, I just said, how can you not write a book on this? Like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. And I didn't, I, I wasn't looking too far ahead. It was just, I was just going to write on the craziness, right? But as you got into the craziness, it got crazier and crazier and crazier as you began to go bigger and bigger into the cities and the builders and the stories around it and the, and the, the, everything that involved whatever these fairs were. And I began to see, oh my God, these fairs are not just fairs. They're something much, much bigger. And so that, that's how it came about. It came about from, from again, this thing that happened in Florence and this realization of uh, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. And how come no one's writing a book about it? I better do that. Wow. You know, I have a, a friend of mine who uh, builds, you know, these like incredible houses up in Hollywood Hills. And, uh, you know, a lot of these projects for, you know, a couple of million dollar homes, it would take mm. him a year, year and a half to build. And so to, to believe that these giant 700, 1200 square, you know, yard, you know, 1200 yard uh, expositions Acre. were yeah, acres that were being built within a, a span of two years. That, I mean, that's just technologically impossible without having yeah. thousands of people, you know, crews. And then not to mention that there's no infrastructure the all you know, the technology back then were like horse and buggy and, and cowboys basically, <laughs> you know, hauling all this material around, and we're, we're expected to believe that all these things were built in, under in under two years. It, it's crazy. Did you, have you taken the stuff like the pictures of the World's Fair to him and asked what he's thought of it? Um, I haven't talked to him about it yet. Um, I, I've been meaning to have that conversation with him because he's he's. Uh, he, he's probably going to move out here to Texas and yeah. Uh, yeah, I want him to really look into this and like blow his mind. <laughs> right. Because that's what I did. I, I, I went to a building contractor before I went too deeply into the research and decided, should I really write this or not? I'll go see some building contractors and yeah, see what they say. And, and when I show, I first showed them just, I didn't tell them what they were looking at. Right. I just showed them pictures of the exposition. And I remember, and I remember saying, what is this? What city is this? And it's like, you know, I've been like, they're, I live here in Norway. And so these people here travel all over Europe. I think I've been all over Europe. I've never seen anything like this. Well, it's not in Europe. That's, that's Chicago in 1893. Like, what do you mean that's Chicago? And as I began explaining and telling him the story, uh, he was, and then I, I, I the, mo the big part was I asked him, I said, okay, can you build this? Could you build this for me today? Like right now, today, if I, if I had, you know, unlimited money and I asked you to build this, could you? He said, yes, yes, we, of course we could, we could build this. And I said, what would it take you? He said, well, I'd probably need a 50,000 man crew and I would need um, two years for the planning because this is gonna be an unbelievably difficult project. You've got uh, canals and waterways and electrical trains and moving, moving sidewalks. I mean, you've got a tremendous amount of planning plus all these buildings. So give me two years for that. Then give me two years to dig out all the, all the waterworks and, uh, and support the buildings and get all that done. And then give me about 10 to 12 years for the buildings 
So 15 years, give or take, with modern machinery, modern equipment, and a 50,000-man workforce. And again, I told him, well, they did this in two years in 1891 to 93. And his, his only response was, not possible. Wow. And this is a person who does this for a living, you know. And then when I showed him the photos of the construction sites, this this is where it got even better. So particularly the St. Louis World's Fair has tons of supposed construction photos. And some, I have to admit, are honestly construction photos. Like I don't think I, I some people have thought I, I they think I say they found the entire exposition as it is and just dug it out or something and painted it. And no, they they built a lot of it. They actually did build a lot of these things. Um, my contention is they didn't build all of it. But right. when I showed them the construction photos, particularly of the big buildings, it's usually just the building in the background, scaffolding on uh, on it, no workmen, no nothing, just the scaffolding in the building. And his first response of looking at the pictures, well, I don't know what I'm looking at, but first of all, there's no building materials. Like you can't be building anything, even in a scaffolding without a stack of wood and a whole bunch of stuff close by. Two, there's no road. How come there's no road to bring your materials in and out? I mean, one of the fir- first things you do before you build the building is you build the road to be able to move the stuff in and out. Three, there isn't a coffee cup on the ground anywhere. There isn't a sandwich wrapper. Uh, four, there's no bathrooms. You've got tens of thousands of people. Where are these people going to the bathroom? All he said to me is, I don't know what this is, but nobody's been on this site for at least two to three years. So it was when I finished this conversation with him that I realized, oh boy, I've stumbled on something pretty huge, actually. So what's your your analysis on the purpose of these world fairs? What, What were they designed to originally do? It's hard to say because, again, my contention, like to answer that question of how could they do this in 1891? How could they actually build them? Because, again, if nobody has seen the pictures, just go on the internet, look up the Chicago Exposition or the Buffalo World's Fair or the St. Louis and see the buildings. I mean, they're mm-hmm. staggering. They're just staggeringly beautiful and, and, and ornate. And, um, and, the, the, you know, the story that they're built with a thing called staff, which is a type of plaster and, and wooden frame, doesn't make sense when you're building things like 390-foot high uh, electrical tower in Buffalo because you don't want that crashing down on people who are going to the top of it. So it's it's pretty obvious. These are pretty solid structures that they're building. Right. So it means there's only two answers. Either one, they had a technology they're not supposed to have. And they did something like 3D print the buildings or whatever, right? They must have had some kind of technology or the major buildings were already there and they didn't have to build them. They just fixed them up. If it's the second one that's true, then it means that's from some sort of highly advanced ancient civilization that was all over the world. Luckily, because it, these were happening in the in uh, the United States and Australia and etc., there wasn't supposed to be a long a civilization of you know European colonials. So it can't explain the buildings having come from like you couldn't say Budapest. Well, they've been building for a thousand years. You know, it, it, you're not supposed to have that in Philadelphia. So it meant that there had to have been a. a if that's true, there had to be a civilization. Uh, much, much further back that resembled ancient Rome or resembled ancient Greece all over the world. And if that were the case, then you've got this thing, well, the fairs look like they're doing two things. One, they're covering up and removing the memory of this ancient, um, highly technologically advanced civilization, but not technology as we know, the technology of energy. And at the same time, it looks like we hear this word being thrown around so much today, reset. Mm-hmm. This is the big word, and I use the word in my book 
in early 2019 before any of this stuff happened. And when, when the first time that came on the news, I, I got like, my skin got really goose pimply, like, Oh no, because that's, that's a word that is kind of used by members of the alternate history community to describe a time somewhere in the 1800s where there seemed to have been some sort of reset where humanity was in some cases, you might say wiped out and a whole new thing was started. Um, and the World's Fair seemed to be the starting point of the new human experience, uh, the one you and I know, the one that you and I have uh, experienced, you might say, was born at the time of the World's Fairs. And these these fairs would have been like the um, the propaganda ministry of explaining because they had huge areas of them that were not just technology, but were history. So all of the history we know of were probably invented and presented at the time of the fairs. Uh, science was invented and presented at the time of the fairs. Um, all of this stuff. So as you went into the detail, I, I think these were like before television, before movies, before all this stuff. This was the way to, you might say, get a population to think a certain way was use these fairs as the as the movement point going forward that's what i would believe they are yeah because when people went to these fairs they left with some sort of certificate to you know kind of like you've graduated you now you have all this information and you are now part of this new society yeah they got diplomas so it's the weirdest thing you would get a diploma on your on your exiting from the world's fair what yeah what did you graduate from what have you what did what, what diploma? Got to be kidding. And what was really weird is which fair was it? One of the early ones, like Buffalo, St. Louis, you had photographic ID. You you were given a, a badge with photo ID. How advanced is this? You've got photo ID for the World's Fair. Then the one in Chicago, yeah, it had an electric train. So if they could have an electric train running around the entire world's fair and then there are no electric vehicles pretty much uh you know for the next 150 years well what happened to that uh the more you the more i would dig into it the weirder it got and if anyone's really interested there's a website called studylove.org i think it is and this person has literally put all of the links to everything about the fairs all in one site you have to look for it. It's, it's when you go to his homepage, it's hard to find. I think you have to go slash world's fairs or something to find it. But like, if you click into any of the world's fairs, he'll list what the weirdest thing was after every one of these fairs, right after the year after there would be seven or eight books written about it uh, hmm. by historians of the day. And these books are like 8,000 pages long. Uh, there were travel guides for all of these world's fairs. So like Rand McNally and these, they, they, so, and these again are like a thousand pages long. They detail every exhibit, everything that's in one place, every restaurant, every, it's, these things are so massive and, and, and incredible. And the, the literature on it, it, it just blows your mind when you actually see what was at these things. It's like, wow. And then they just burn the thing to the ground and, just forget about it. It's 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 mind bending, and sorry if I just keep rambling like this. But like, oh no, you know, here's Chicago in 1893. It's supposed to have this had this fire in 1871. It's supposed to have destroyed a lot of the city. So you build all of these giant buildings. You'd think you'd need some buildings after having this, these fires. 
why would you want to just destroy them right away? Like San Francisco, earthquake, 1906. So they, they, they actually, where they built the World's Fair, supposedly built it, was uh, the area of San Francisco where a lot of homeless people were still sleeping because they didn't have anywhere to live. They, hadn't, they, they had no buildings yet for them to live. So they kicked them all out of there, built the fair, and then tore the whole thing down. Wouldn't you keep some of the buildings because they're, you were homeless people. There were supposed to be people from the earthquake that were needed a place to live. Here's some buildings. Why don't you let them live there? So every part of these stories is just more and more insane. Uh, so it's yeah. obviously, it doesn't take much to realize, well, it's a lie. Uh, yeah. What's true is hard to know, but it's obviously a lie. I think a lot of the government buildings, you or they have, you know, the courthouses and stuff, and the, you know, the the capital buildings all over, and the city capital buildings. I think those were are they, they could possibly be the the remnants of that old civilization, because the, these structures are so massive and huge. There there is one here in Dallas, and we drove by, and it's uh, it is a courthouse, but if you Google it. Um, the top dome is being blurred out. So I find that very peculiar. And, and I tried to in, uh, research and I can't find the original building date. They, they only have a, like a restoration date of like 1925. Uh-huh. But beyond that, it's a, it's a kind of a big mystery. And it's like in the middle of nowhere, basically. You know, it's in a small town called Rockwall. Oh, and yeah. uh, and it, it just, it's, it's in the middle of nowhere. It, it's like, why would anybody build this giant structure? And like, wh- you know, what else was here before that? Yeah. Uh, that's one thing that people in the United States have a great opportunity for. It's, yeah, any state capitol building, particularly if you live in the Midwest, that's a really good place to go. If you're in Kansas or Iowa or North Dakota or something, go look at your state capitol building and then realize, go look at the construction date, which yeah, might have been like, you know, 1840 or 1850 or 60 or something, and then say, but there's no people living here. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's a very small amount of cowboys and, and people that have moved out, out to the West. And this is one of the first things you want to build is this. And if you do get some constru- early photos of these buildings, of these capital buildings, again, there's no road. Right. So you're bringing in this massive amount of stone and materials and uh, and you don't think, I'm going to take a couple of days and build a road to make the transportation, as you say, and, and horse and buggy, you know, that's really <laughs> tough transport of stone. I think a road might be a good idea. You know, it's only going to take you a week or two, put a road in and then the rest of, no, no road. We don't want that. We're just going to build this. So again, you've got these capital buildings that are right there where you live that you probably never really thought about and go look at it again and then start thinking, 1844, how did they build this? How was mm-hmm. this? A, where did they get the material from? How did they transport it here? Uh, how was this built like this? How, who who actually was able to build this in, in this particular location in 1844? It's, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy when you when you really start to think about it. And then again, realize how many times have you driven past this and never, never laid a thought of wondering about it in the least? It's amazing. Yeah. Um, it's like the last five years, there's been some kind of weird zeitgeist in this um, in this uh, historical time period of these buildings that kind of like, for some reason, the whole world's, po- or not the whole world, but a large number of the world's population has kind of said, wait a minute, this is a story worth looking at. And uh, like if, I, if I wrote this book five years ago, I bet you very few people would have read it. I bet you I wouldn't, wouldn't be doing interviews. It wouldn't have led to a YouTube channel. It would have just been a 
casual interest that today somebody would have gone back and read. But now, for whatever, this is the kind of, or has been anyway, the you might call it the flavor of the month. And I just kind of got lucky that it, I wrote into it at the time I did. Yeah, I don't know how I came across your video series. And I, I don't know if it was the, the story about the Cathars that came first. Uh, that in itself is a whole interesting story as well. Um, it, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense that the, you know, the, you know, the Catholic religion has really just hijacked most of mainstream religion and that why would they want to wipe out the Cathars, you know, to, to have a crusade to wipe them out? Like, what were they, what were they spreading? What, what information were they spreading that they just didn't want anybody to know? Yeah, or, or what powers did they have that mm-hmm. they were afraid of? Again, I, I see a lot of this, that this idea of if, if you kind of take history in some cases of there are groups that have power and knowledge and ability and, and that's not what – if you're trying to control a population, you don't want people accessing the deepest parts of your power – and one of the first things you'd want to do is eliminate those that can so that there's nobody you can go to and kind of, you know, tap on the shoulder and say, hey, can you tell me how you, how you do that? If they're not here anymore, it, it right. doesn't take too many generations to to get lost. I mean, the, 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 the Native Indians that I knew, the uh, medicine men I knew, always told me that for whatever we can do today, it's nothing compared to the ones 500 years ago used to know before the whites came here and they used to, and they would say, and the, the, the sad thing is, is what they knew we've lost. We don't know it anymore. It's, it's been, well, all we have is what we have. Um, and I think that's very similar to in a lot of things around the world. So when you look at the Cathars, that story of, yeah, the really the, the giant genocide, right? The, the, the complete wiping out of a population of southern France. But then you get the story, but then 100 years later, the same thing happens to the Knights Templar. Well... And the Knights Templar are, <laughs> it's almost, I, I, once I started into the story, I started realizing, well, they're not separate. You, 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 you don't just have one, one, one century and then one the other century. And these two groups were so interlinked in Southern France, I began to see the Knights Templar were one part of the group and the Cathars were like another part of it, but they're, they're the same group. They're not really different. Right. And maybe the two events happened all at the same time, that there wasn't one event and then another event there was just one event that they've split up to try to confuse people as to what really happened um so it's not just you have to know well what did the cathars know that they wanted to get rid of you have to ask well what did the knights templar know that they wanted to get rid of and and this opens a whole because yeah that takes you into the potential of the holy grail and 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 what all of these things might really be and it's that too is fascinating stories. And again, that was another part of history that I began pulling apart and saying, oh boy, here's another one that's, you know, <laughs> got to get torn to shreds. Yeah. The, the story of the Cathar is how you told the, um, what they knew and what they were preaching and just going around and just letting people know, because, the, you know, they were kind of like nomads, but they were doing their own kind of preaching and, and kind of like the secrets of the world. Like, you know, this is just your vessel and this is going to lead to, you know, being closer to the higher spirit. And once you pass on, like, you know, you know, instead of being reincarnated, you you go towards something else. I mean, it's it's such a fascinating topic. 
And, yeah, uh, it is. And it's hard because we we don't really know much of what the Cathars actually believed or taught because all of that stuff was burned. So right. most of what we get from the Cathars directly is, you know, the Catholic Church's presentation of them. So, of course, the winners are writing the story. So, of course, they're always going to portray them differently than the truth. Exactly. Um, the closest you're probably going to get to knowing what's really going on with them would be to read like the Nag Hammadi Gnostic fragments. Um, that those are probably as close to Cathar thought as you can get. And if we if we boil it down to some of the people listening on the on this cast, it's um, uh, if you had to simplify some Cathar ideas, probably. And again, I can't say like anything. I don't know for sure. Like uh, for, even with the World's Fairs, like, I don't know what the World Fairs really are. I just make a guess. Uh, I know what they weren't, but um, Cathars are another thing. So they're, they're, one of their main beliefs is that the world itself is evil, that the material world is evil because it was created by, not by what they would call the real God, it was created by the, the Old Testament God is how they would describe it. So everything in this reality is evil, including the physical body. And your your task is to disassociate with the material world completely or as you do as little as you possibly can in it live completely without fear with the idea that you transcend the evil world by moving then into the world to the real god um they would see jesus for example uh the story being completely incorrect is told by the, the christians because he couldn't be god could not be born into flesh because as soon as you would be born into flesh you would be you would be of the devil world, so you would be evil. So in that case, he, Jesus would have to be evil. The only way the Jesus story works in their um, uh, idea would be to say, well, he was like a hologram. He would have been like a mental projection into this world, so that means he's not actually physical matter, so therefore he can't be evil, and therefore um, therefore is followable and listen toable. So just this, these ideas just begin to, to tear apart the potentialities of normal religion, but at the same time, keep the religious text and the religious idea uh, totally, you know, it doesn't destroy the, 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 like it doesn't destroy the New Testament, it just takes you to potentially looking at it in a completely different way. And they, they had this, they lived in a sense of equality of men and women were completely equal. Both were priests, both were teachers, both were healers, both were, so they have this unbelievably different way of being and living and seeing like they called themselves true christians that's how they described themselves they didn't see themselves as non-christian they just saw themselves as what they called original christians you might say and they they were against what they thought was the the false the false christianity that was happening in rome and that's if i simplify the cathar story that's it um and then for some reason finally combination of the king of france and the pope and various other organizations decided it's time to get rid of these people and uh, they did and for the most part they did of course you would never get rid of all of them some of it moved on survived maybe even made it into the early rosicrucian text and and made it into the grail stories because the, the stories of the holy grail are all written at the very time that the Cathars are just starting their the this crusade against the Cathars, which is also very interesting. Why does the Grail stories want to be written at the time of these Cathar crusades? So there's no doubt they're all linked. The 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 information is linked, and there's there is truth there. It's just hard to figure out what it is. Wow. So you th- you think that this whole spiritual warfare that's it's been going on for hundreds of years 
And uh, I do, do you believe that we're kind of like at the cusp of this spiritual warfare? Because I, I feel like people are more detached from, you know, I, I, I don't even, I don't even believe that God is who we think he is. You know, I, I you know, it, I mean, that's all part of the spiritual warfare is being detached from our spiritualness and just, yeah, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to try to describe because there's the, um, when you see reality as, is dreamlike or as a story or as a movie, not as, as a real reality. Once you've had that experience, um, that reality is not what you think it is. Then this, yeah, what you might call a spiritual warfare, a, uh, a control of, if we simplify it, say it easy, control of human attention and perception. Mm-hmm. That, that if we simplify it down, that's really what's going on for hundreds of years, is trying to control what you perceive, what you believe you perceive, uh, therefore what your hopes, dreams, fears, and everything else are, and control your perception, how you want to, how you're associating with the world, That if we simplify it. So that's been going on for a long period of time and does seem to be amplifying, does seem to be amplifying. Yeah. Um, on, on the other token, though, it's weird because you have to see that as a as a what what is going on, but the realization at the same time of it's also another distraction point. It's also this idea of getting uh, of getting tied into what's happening in reality as opposed to what's happening inside of me. You know what what is this me thing? What is the me thing experiencing and feeling? What is what is what is it going through? And the more external in any time, as soon as the world gets crazy, well, you get focused on it. Obviously, that's mm-hmm. just that's natural dealing with the chaos in the world. So the more chaos external, the less likely you're going to be able to go in and know what's going on inside of you. So it also would, on the flip side of this, must mean this is the good part of it. Well, the spiritual warfare that's going on is really, really harsh. And I can guarantee you for the people that are going through it and are having to really stand in their humanness now and stand in what they feel freedom is and what they feel is important to them. It's, it's hard. And I, I know it's hard. And I'm, uh, <laughs> and I'm sharing that with you. The other flip side of it is if, if things are getting that hard, it must mean there's a doorway right now to something really, really deep and important within that this whole this whole game you might say is trying to keep you from so bizarrely things get harder when the potential opportunity gets uh, gets greater yeah you know i've noticed that with you know this whole lockdown when it all began and like you know my wife and i were watching television and we felt that anxiety that fear just overcoming us and um as soon as you t- we turned off the television, we started to feel slowly back to normal. Like we had less anxiety and we can think clearer. And then I just had this like epiphany. I'm like, we need to get out of California. It This is not going to get any better. And I was telling my friends, I'm like, you know what? You need to store up food. You need to, to get out of this state. And some people took my, took my warning and some people just, you know, hoped and believed that everything was just going to get better. And you know, I'm glad I left when we did because we we would probably be homeless right now had we stayed. And um, you know, our, our kind of like our sanctuary away from there is Texas, but I don't know how long that's going to last. You know, we may have to relocate somewhere else. But you know, can only run so much before you have to just accept and just be, you know, 
find answers outside of ourselves and uh you know i don't know i don't know what the answer is i'm still discovering and my mind's just as open as i can possibly be you know yeah that's uh, that's i think the biggest step that's happening now is there's always an opportunity to go within and trauma and difficulty you know i wasn't looking within until the stuff happened with my father and, and joan was murdered and whatever once life gets tough um you either deny it drown it out drink yourself into oblivion whatever or you start looking to the only place that you know who who to talk to that's yourself right you start having this really deep conversations of what's going on what's happening what am i feeling why have i always thought like this and you can really and so and that's of course the doorway to anything the the, the power and the knowledge we all seek is where we are it's within us it's always it's always been there it's just we've had we've been distracted since birth to keep looking outside for everything else it's that everything we need is external to us when really it's internal mm -hmm. and um so again that's what i feel i feel like as i've been watching the world get crazier and crazier um more and more people though that i've come to see uh that might take that might get certain realizations or awakenings or whatever that might take five years it might take them five months now <laughs> because the everything is intensified and it's starting to be like if i can't go extra if i can't even go to the grocery store and feel safe and feel uh feel like normal and sane well the only place i have that opportunity is me so get out in the forest sit with a tree and see what's going on inside of me and it's 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 also been interesting that the ones that have done that those kinds of not, not that specifically but you know those kinds of things have had great great jumps of, of understanding because they've the external world has pushed them to the place they've kind of been forgetting to look at all of this time themselves yeah you, you can't find yourself being trapped in a you know 10 by 10 wall watching television you know you're just going to be you're going to be programmed to believe whatever they want you to, to believe i mean the programming is just I mean, there, you can when you step away you can see the mind control and you can see the the narrative and the agenda behind everything that they're all saying and so you just become more aware of it once you step away from all the the technology which is why i i barely post anything on social media and it's it's such a hard thing for me to do because i know i need to do it to promote this stuff but at the same time i'm like ah, i really don't want to look at this this garbage because it's it's all it's it's not real it's not real you know <laughs> yeah yeah and um yeah uh what we what, sorry i just lost my train of thought what were we talking about before the social media just before that you were saying um the whole, the whole reality of being locked up in a room and watching television oh yeah yeah, the television thing. Did you did you by chance watch my video on that uh, I did on Jerry Mander's book on the um, on on the what he called the four reasons or the four re yeah the four reasons to to end television or something like that? I I don't think so. I think for a moment you were posting so many videos that I, that I yeah. Uh, I, you I should I go back track. and look at that one. Yeah, Jerry Mander wrote a book way back in the 1970s that basically said why not only should you stop watching television why you should eliminate it completely from society in the 1970s wow. and the stuff he said that so i mean now you take that to computers and screens and whatever else it, it was just it was mind-blowing 
And beyond even the things you're talking about of conditioning and programming and the way things are manipulating the mind, there was so many levels to what he had found the actual television itself was doing. It's, it was an amazing read and I had to, I put it into like 20 or 30 minutes of video to try to present it to people because it was like, wow. And yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, but when I was a kid, I watched a lot of television and I wonder, here's one for you that just for fun, try to think of say, uh, Okay, any sport you played or something like that or, or music uh, group you were with or something, can you remember like all the names of the people that you were on a baseball team you had or something when you were like 10? No. No. <laughs> Start thinking of various commercials that you listened to when you were, or that you saw when you were 10 years old. I bet you you'll remember all the jingles. Oh, yeah. Um, whenever I hear a song, I can remember where... I was at that moment when I first heard it, or if I see a commercial, I can remember. Yeah, you're you're right. It's so programmed yeah. in our brains. And, and like I, I did that once, and I could go through. I didn't remember the commercials, but I remembered the little the little taglines. You know. Yeah, I have meow a hard makes, time meow remembering. Meow, meow, meow. It's yeah. still it's in your brain forever. I barely have. I, I have a hard time remembering the people who I graduated high school with. Right. Like, you know. I'll go on to like the the uh, the classmates, and I'm like, I don't remember these people. I mean, for one, we we all like look completely different, <laughs> right? Yeah, but that's just an example of how how the how conditioned television really is. How much we our view of the world and our view of everything was has been shaped being a television generation. You know, we're we're uh, we have. And you didn't realize it at the time that what you were watching on TV was not just entertaining you. It was making you think certain ways, making you believe certain things, making you uh, the good guy always wins or, um, you know, uh, just anything about government or the police or or lawyers or it doesn't matter what it was. It was always presenting uh, a, a general idea to you that you didn't even know you're being conditioned with yeah yeah and i i feel like you know because those expositions like a lot of they were like building i don't know i think you mentioned that they were kind of like uh the the source of like racism almost that uh they had like different buildings that represented each culture from around the world and then at the same time they were like you had to have so much money to go into these workshops and to, to well, earn this we, diploma. Well, what the things they, what some of the things they had at these, we'll go back to the fairs here. What the things why I say the fairs were like an indoctrination or a creation of the story of the life we've known um, <clears throat> is because <clears throat> I just get some water. Besides the, um, the tech <clears throat> stuff here. <laughs> someone <coughs> someone's afraid of what i'm going to say wow yeah <coughs> okay center myself <coughs> wow this is wild oh something's preventing okay, people, me from speaking <laughs> something important is coming yeah 
So beyond the technology that these fairs were presenting, and they were trying to present this brand new spangled technology of what was what was coming in the world. Like you said, they had these things they known as midways, um, amusement areas. In the amusement areas, usually had two specific things. One would be a human zoo. And it would be, yes, they would bring primitives from all over the world. So they would bring various native Indian tribes. They would bring Zulus from Africa. They would bring pygmies from here. They'd bring uh, early people from, from uh, the Philippines. And they would be for displaying them as savages. <laughs> they would dis- be display them as the the early people that you evolved from, right? Almost like to the point of animals. At the Buffalo World's Fair, they uh, they had the Indians at the at that fair. They forced them to slaughter seven thousand dogs in the uh, Coliseum and then eat them. Uh, and, or I no, sorry, five hundred dogs. I guess is what they slaughtered. But seven thousand people came to watch it. Seven thousand people came to pay money to watch native Indians slaughter five hundred dogs and eat them in the Coliseum. These are the kind of things that are being presented. They had things like the old plantation at many of these fairs, which were trying to show how much fun it was to have been a black slave on the plantation. So you've got this portion of the fair, which is another one. Where this is bizarre. They had them at a lot of fairs, but I think they started this in maybe Nashville, the Nashville Fair or something. But the Smithsonian would have an exhibit of skulls. And it would show, of course, the primitive skull all the way to the the uh, Victorian skull, which would be bigger uh, the, as the advance. The skulls get bigger. And then they would have a measuring device to measure your head so that you could see where on the evolutionary scale you were. Were you primitive or were you were you the advanced Victorian, right? So you've got this whole bizarre, yeah, racist um, presentation going on. Meanwhile, you've got these giant areas of history. And they are presenting history on a massive scale. In St. Louis at the World's Fair, I've said this a few times, but on their midway, they had 25 exhibits. They required 100,000 actors, and they relived everything. So if you went to ancient Rome, I think they had three or 4,000 actors portraying as gladiators, as, uh, you know, whatever you wanted to see of ancient Rome, they had that. At the uh, One that comes to mind is Jerusalem. They recreated 22 streets of the old city of Jerusalem, including the old sites, including uh, the temples, including the supposed stable where Jesus is born. They brought like 10,000 people or something, 5,000 people from Jerusalem to be actors and work the restaurants, work the streets, work the exhibits. They had ones like this for the Siberian train. You could go to the German Alps. You could go to Paris. You could go to you could go to Spain. You could go to the old St. Louis. You could go and watch uh, fights in the Boer War. You, the, the scale of this was just gigantic. I mean, it's it was it's like bigger than Disneyland. Yeah, and that's just the historical part of the St. Louis World's Fair. And. How could you not, under those circumstances and those times, have gone to something like that, seen the description of ancient Rome or the description of life in Paris in the Middle Ages and think that can't be correct? Of course, you would you would come across from there thinking, now I know what ancient Rome was like. I didn't just see it. I experienced it. I, mm-hmm. I interacted. You know, I didn't just watch a documentary. 
I was the, 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 you literally would have had the experience in your mind of being in ancient Rome and the ancient Rome they wanted you to believe was ancient Rome. It's it's mind boggling when you when you look at the scale of it of what they did at these fairs, and that's why I start to think what an easy way to create and manipulate history going forward. Because like you say, only the only the rich could or the well off could go to these fairs because they were so expensive. The, the entry right. fee entry fee was cheap, but to do anything cost a lot of money. So of course, all the school teachers would be there, all the university professors, anybody who had any kind of connection to any key part of society. So the very people who would have become the authority figures to describe whatever they experienced at the fair, the people, the next people, whether it's the children or their executives or, their, or the people in the company, well, they'd have to believe them. They've just been to the, the World's Fair. How could the World's Fair be wrong? And it's, it's an amazing thing when wow. you see it. And this is happening, of course, right at the same time. You've got these bizarre orphan trains happening all over the United States, right? These, Just about to bring that up. Yeah, you've got these orphans, tens of thousands of orphans in these eastern cities that they put on trains and take them to to the west. And like, well, where are these orphans coming from? Like, what's happening to all these adults in the in the east? That you've got tens of thousands of orphans that they can just ship around the country. And at the exact same time, they're supposedly building these giant insane asylums all over the U.S. and, and the world, in fact, that are – they're bigger and more beautiful than the Medici palaces of Florence or like – you know they're almost at the equivalent of the Vatican. And it's like, one, why do you need so many insane asylums? Who, who is going insane like this and, and you know what's the story? And why do you need to make them look like – why do you need to make them look like palaces? So – but given that the story that both of these things are also going on at the exact same period of the fairs indicates they're all connected. They're all connected and it's all part of some gigantic hidden hidden narrative that's been tried to be wiped out of the, the, the storyline for a long time. Yeah, so they were using these fairs as reprogramming centers. So whatever you knew before that, or all those children who be, who came from those orphanages didn't have a lot of foundation. So they could just send them to these classes, relearn history, how we want to present it. And if they had any questions, they could just, you know, fix the these these certain points and rewrite history in real time. Perfect. So, you, you've pretty much, I think, nailed it right on. Again, this, this is only my theory because I can't, it's so hard as you go back in time to be able, anyone who says, I know history, I know the truth about it, they can't know the truth because all you can you don't we don't have a, we don't have a time machine and we don't have the actual video footage of everything that went on we have only what we have pieces of and you can try to do the best you can but this gives us a really good idea of if this if it's a reset that's trying to be put through now we can get a bit of an idea of what that might look like if we look back to what's potentially the last reset this is why this period is so important that's why i feel a the book I wrote is so important for right now is, okay, right. If you want to get rid of a huge part of society and then you want to reshape and recontrol what's left, first thing you'd want is A, a lot of children. Because like you say, children don't have a lot of uh, experience and knowledge of very much. They will believe what they're told, particularly from an authority figure, particularly if they're coming out of trauma, whatever historical figures or whatever sorry, authority figure is going to give them information on any subject and they're finally feeling safe, of course, they're going to automatically believe it. So within one generation, that will be the story that's just passed on when they become teachers. It's just easy to pass on that story. So one generation, you've got that. And then anybody who doesn't want to follow the story or any adults that are still around that don't want to change the narrative, insane asylum. 
you're crazy. You know, you still remember a time when, uh, when you could go to these cathedrals and get healed and you could, you had these energies and you had these star forts and you had, you're still remembering this stuff. Goodbye. <laughs> and I don't see any difference of what could happen today, which is um, bring forth a population, a new population. They might say that's easy to um, program and make sure the ones that still remember are not around. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know where to take this conversation to next. Um, uh, I mean, there's so many things that we could possibly talk about. Uh, you're working on another book, right? Aren't you? About um, more about the the history in France and like Pluto's cave and stuff. Uh, well, I was going to write the Plato's one on, cave. On, yeah, I was going to write the one on France, but. Uh, to write it into a book became, I, I realized it was going to just take way more research than I could possibly afford at this time, given how crazy the world is and, and how difficult our uh, travel is now impossible. You can't travel anyway to go to go there. That's why I thought right. I'd turn them into YouTube videos, because at the very least, I can get the information out in sort of the, the early form that it's in and, and release it. Um, the Plato's Cave videos, which... Um, uh, really surprised me by not only the level of interest they generated, but the incredible depth of knowledge that the the comments were bringing up. The the to me the comments on things like some of the Plato's Cave videos and even some of the spiritual warfare videos, the later ones I've done, the the community of people that have been coming to my YouTube channel are very highly knowledgeable, and I, I love reading the comments on those and. The, the, the basic premise is, of course, the story of Plato's cave and being, being trapped in a false reality and what happens if you decide to exit and leave. And if anything, I think if there's a new book, it might be a combination of the discussion after my death experience that I had in 2005, which I guess we haven't got to yet. I guess you had one as well, didn't you say you had a death experience? Yeah, after hearing your story about your near-death experience, it made me remember that I had one myself that I had completely forgotten. And yeah, when so you- we'll talk about that in a second here. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just say, so uh, I think that if there's a new book, it'll be about the period after this death experience, how difficult that's been, how confusing that's been, and then bring in some of these Plato's Cave ideas at the, at the end of that to discuss the leaving. So let's talk about our death experiences. Why don't you lead us in? <laughs> Well, um, God, it happened, you know, I was married before it was, this is about almost 20 years ago. And, um, we were on our honeymoon up in, uh, Kauai. And, uh, I've only told one other person other than my wife being there. And, uh, we hadn't talked about it ever since, but, um, we went at this like coral reef and, you know, it's supposed to be like a safe area for us, for people to swim and I saw a sea turtle and I just had snorkel gear. And so I dove down to try to like grab it and swim with it. And I found myself going too far. And I, I looked back up and I'm like, oh, wow, I'm really deep. So I tried to go back to the surface because I needed air. And right as I got close to the surface, I felt this tug, like someone actually grabbed my, my leg and was pulling me in i immediately realized that it was an undertow and uh i i was swimming for 
you know, I, well, thankfully I was very conditioned. I worked out every day and, um, but there was a split second where I thought I wasn't going to make it. And, um, this whole like feeling rushed through me and it, it was like a, a, a cold sensation and I almost froze, but I, I fought through it and was able to reach the surfacing and I got a, a, a breath of uh, air, but I was still submerged. And, um, I just found just this inner strength and I just swam as hard as I could. I kind of flattened out and instead of struggling, I, I just worked on my body form and next thing you know, I, I reached the surface and I realized I'm about, you know, two, 300 yards away and I could see in the distance and I'm waving my arms like help, help. And nobody can hear me. And, um, I, I realized I had to swim back. And so I just put my head down and have, thankfully I had a snorkel gear cause I would have definitely would have drowned. But, uh, as I got to the, to the beach and I was like on my hands and knees, I rolled over and I, you know, I was just exhausted. And my wife comes up to me and she's like, what the hell's wrong with you? And I'm like, I almost died. And she's like, oh, you're over exaggerating. Come, come lay down. And she just, proceeded to go back to her spot, picked up their books and continued reading. And then I tried to tell her, like, I really almost died. I got, I got pulled under and I was like 300 yards away. And she's like, nah, you know, I think you're over exaggerating. So at that moment, I, I felt like a, a different person. And I realized at that moment that I'm not living the life that I should be living. And, it, you know, later I found out that she was pregnant. And so I decided, well, I need, I need, can't just run. So I, I tried to stick it out for as long as I could. But it, it just seemed like ever since that point, because she didn't hear me out. She didn't believe that it happened. You know, it almost made me believe that what I experienced wasn't reality and that it, no one else saw it happen. So am I was that just in my head? Did that not happen? And it, it just felt like, all right, well, I'll just bury it down deep and I just won't think about it. But my life had been changed ever since then. And so I had to, we had, we eventually divorced and I went through this like whole spiral, ended up getting in a car accident and getting on medication. I became kind of like an alcoholic because I, I gained a bunch of weight and I was drinking every day. And, uh, you know, it took a long time for me to come out of that hole. But I, in between that time, I had all these like, like weird awakenings, like, you know, even though your life is screwed up, you, you took the right path. And, you know, it wasn't even until, you know, when I met my, my current wife, Glitter, and uh, about eight years ago, that uh, things started to, you know, get better. And finally, I'm like away from that that distant part of my my life where I just felt like I was in total chaos, and I just knew I wasn't meant to be. That part of my life wasn't meant to be the way it was because I wasn't I wasn't living for me. I, I felt like I was a completely different person. I was not doing anything I was supposed to be doing. You know, I was just like you know, you go to school, you get married, you have kids, you you get the white picket fence in the house and. I was like, this isn't, this isn't me. I'm not meant to do this, you know? And so I, I had been grappling with that whole truth for so long. And, and 
I, I kept it buried and never really talked about it and until right now <laughs> which is so, so have you talked about it with your wife your current yeah, wife? she she knows um i you know like this morning before i got in with you i'm like you know i'm gonna tell you know howdy mikowski and my audience like this is what happened to me because i have never really healed from it and and mm. talked about it and it, it's always been buried deep and deep inside of me because i was i was meant to believe it never happened because i it, it's it's just weird yeah, I mean, you weren't validated in the second it, it just you, you literally just survived and yeah. you weren't validated. And so, of course, you're in your mind is spinning at that point. You don't know how to handle it. And I'd be curious if I can ask a couple of questions, if that's OK. Sure. When you were in the so when you were under the water and you were having you were realizing, oh, boy, you know, I, I'm, I got a long way to go here. Do you remember if you had any thought? like actual mental thought or if if there was like something else was operating um you know for a for a split second which felt way longer um you know i felt when i had that that feeling it kind of shot through my body like a lightning bolt mm. it, it almost felt like this is it this is how i'm going and and then <laughs> Another thought was like, am I okay with this? Should I, am I going to be able to, to come through with it or should I just accept it? And somehow I was like, all right, I, I can't just accept this. So <laughs> I mean, like, I just felt like I had to fight, you know? Mm. Yeah. I, I just, you know, because you've heard my story, you've seen some of it. That's why I'm asking this question. It's really interesting. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't doubt that it was, when you've just got through that and there's and there's this confusion going on and like you say this looking at my life as it is now and who who can you talk to about it right who can you who can you share the story who can you get some some assistance from if then when there was no one and particularly no one really soon after the event of course you just probably bury it but as soon as you bury it it's just going to start building inside and you know I've had yeah. opportunities to talk to therapists about it, and for whatever reason, it never came out of me. Because hmm. I felt like whatever I say isn't gonna make me feel any better. Right. So I just left it, let let it be. I didn't feel right. like talking about it. Right. I, well, I think it's, it's, it's a, a power. It's a powerful moment that you've done that. You know, to a large number of people now. And uh, and know that it's it's okay. It's it's a powerful experience, and it can take years to understand and and totally integrate. And that's a big help to others out there who may have had the same thing and maybe going through the exact same experience of I don't, I'm not believing it. I don't want to talk about it. I want to hide from it. And and this is a way of same thing when I talk about it. It's trying to let people know it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to bring it out and and look at it. Right. You know, when I was in the military and I wasn't in for very long, I, I got out as quickly as I could. Because um, once when I was witnessing people who I went to, to training with and uh, they were going off to war and a few of them weren't coming back. And I started to have this like anxiety. Well, even even during basic training and advanced training and all that, I, I started to feel this lack of control. It's like, all right, I just 
signed over my life to a government who I really don't believe in fighting for, you know, because I, when I, when I first signed up, I thought I was doing something courageous and, and great for the country. You know, we had just, you know, we were just attacked and all this stuff, but um, I felt like I, I was doing something, you know, heroic, but then I realized that my life is no longer in my hands. And so I felt the mortality again, the, that same feeling that I felt when I was drowning and I was like, you know, I, I don't want any part of this. I want to get out. And then um, the, the base that I was stationed at, it was being shut down. And they gave me an opportunity to transfer and continue my service until the, until the very end, or I could retire. I'm like, this is it. I'm, I'm retiring. I, I don't want any part of this. I want out. And uh, that, that was the last time <laughs> I had, had uh, been involved in any kind of like military service. And, you know. I don't know. <laughs> mm. Well, I know um, when I went through my death experience in 2005, which um, um, also involved water, as you know, it also involved um, the potential of drowning. And um, when when I got when I got into that uh, river in the canyon and realized I'm probably not getting out, and fully accepted a little similar like you did there that that moment that moment of acceptance of uh this is where i'm going to die mm-hmm. and it's okay I, I i had no need to struggle i had no need to i looked at <clears throat> it's like again it's all happening in microseconds right like like huge amounts of information are happening in microseconds and and i just said that's okay i'm i'm going to die and i'm just going to have good seats to watch it okay and once that happened and and the struggle stopped I stopped. The thing I had always known as me turned off. So thoughts, memories, experiences, emotions, uh, hopes, fears, all of it, it just ended. But what started coming up, I would call, I called them clusters of thought or bundles. And it wasn't thought. It was like complete pieces of information that would like come up like a bubble, explode before your mind. You would know everything that was there, and then it would just go away. And then the next one would come, and the next one would come. And I was getting this constantly, this, 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 this incredible, and again, it's like a microsecond, maybe one second total, but it's this incredible clearness and clarity of like, oh, yeah, I never really existed. I've been like, I've been like a thought, and that now that all of that is gone, What's here now? The awareness that I ha- that I had now at that moment. That, okay, that's this is me. This is really what I am. Uh, all of that other stuff has been like just a mask, just a layer. Just um, and I I was heading to, to die, and it was only because of my friend had fallen in as well. And I turned kind of briefly to look at him, and then uh, just this again, it wasn't thought. It was this bubble came up of like, well, if you don't get out, how how is he going to get out? And it was at that moment that I hit a boulder. I, I veered a little bit off to before I got fell out, went over the canyon falls, and there was a little bit of like um, sandy ground, and I was able to crawl up. and And as I was crawling up, my thoughts started coming back. the 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 mental thought. So it's interesting when I most needed the mental thought when I was dying, thought wasn't there. As soon as I was no longer going to die mental thought returned and the mental thought started thinking well you better get a tree branch you better get something so you can you know he can grab it and you can pull him in and and uh, but he was crawling out himself he was also coming out the lucky thing of that experience of course is that we 
both fell in together. We both had a very similar type of death acceptance. We both, uh, it was all very similar. And we, we sat there together for an hour and we just stared at the water for an hour. We didn't say anything. And then we talked about it. And when we found our experience was unbelievably similar, um, that was the opposite of you. You had no validation. And here we had, here I had not just validation, I had like a mirror of my story to really validate it. And um, that set up a completely different journey than the one I'd been walking up to that point because it was trying to figure out, well, who is the thing I'm looking in the mirror then if, if actually it was gone, you know? And, <laughs> and it's been still 15 years of trying to understand all that. Wow. You know, as you were saying that, um... When I had that acceptance that I was going to die, um, that's when I stopped feeling that that pull. Almost at that, that exact moment, it was like I had this moment of acceptance, and then, like a split second, I I was released, and that's how I was able to reach the surface. Because had I been struggling and hadn't had that moment, maybe I would have been pulled under. You know, I, I don't know. Yeah, very interesting. Again, <clears throat> the acceptance of this kind of stuff, the acceptance of death, one way or another, is a complete release. It's a surrender of a whole of, of various things, right? And we as a society have been taught to be afraid of it. Death is this scary thing, and nobody thinks about well, why is it scary? First of all, what's so scary about it? Um, yeah, okay, it might not be pleasant on the way to it. it might not be an over, overly pleasant experience, but what is it about death that's so terrifying? And if, if somebody's really honest about it, it's the questioning of, did my life really matter? <clears throat> you know, as long as you're still living and there's all these things around you, life is important and what you do and what you don't do, your win, your successes are important, your losses are terrible. But in the face of death, in the face of potential complete oblivion, you did any success really matter? Did any failure matter? Did any, did, you know, what does it really matter when you stare into death? And that's the great fear, right? That's, that's, that's really what people are afraid of, this sense of maybe everything I invested all of my energy into my life isn't where I should have invested all of my energy. And uh, that's why if somebody gets courageous enough to examine death and what it is and your relation to it and what it'll be, it has the potential of opening a storehouse of inner power where mm -hmm. you can turn it from where it's been going for 40 years to in a completely new direction, right? The, that's where like a mother gets the ability to lift the car off her kid, you know, when right. uh, it's that something in that moment of death pushes her into a completely different place and this inner power, oh, she lifts the car up and how did you do that? I don't know. I just did. And so... I saw that from my own experience that once once you don't be afraid of it any longer and start to try to make it your friend, start to try to listen to it, start to try to see what kind of, because one thing now I found in the course of my life is the only force that will never lie to me is death. Death is always honest. I may not like what it says, but it's honest. And it's an that's that's always appreciated. And it's inevitable. We can't escape it. 100% money back guarantee. <laughs> and it's the one thing everybody tries to avoid thinking about. Um, right. And and instead, once you, like, I'm going to guess now, 
your fear of death is completely different than it was before that experience. I don't know that I had ever thought about it. Um, cause I don't think I had any, had any closeness to it. You know mm. what I mean? Um, yeah, I had never really felt had that feeling before. So no reference really other than books and films. So it doesn't become real until you are face to face with it. Yeah. And it's, 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 of course, it's like now, for example, um, people, people who want to stay true to themselves as they've known themselves to be and don't want to just do what some, someone else tells them to do, that requires a great courage. You know, there's people in families I know where, they're the only one who believes certain things or, or won't follow certain rules, but everyone else in their family is. And they feel very isolated and very alone. And it takes unbelievable courage to keep going in the face of that. And anyone who has gained some courage in any way from having to either deal with their own death or see the death of someone close to them in a completely different way. Like you talked about my journey. Well, my journey started with a death, not mine, but the death of a really good friend. And it forced me to start looking into it in different ways. And bizarrely, there's no way I would be here doing this interview. I guarantee there's no way all of these things would have happened to me without Joan's death. Joan's death was like the beginning of a, of a spiraling inward um, it's not that, you know, I'm, I'm happy in any way that it happened, but I, I can look back now and realize um, there was something valuable in my story for it happening. So um, I, sometimes I say thank you for almost her sacrifice, you might say, that turned out to be a very difficult, painful, because like you were talking about your story, I didn't talk about it for three or four years to anybody. It was just so painful. And once I finally got it out of my system, finally went to her grave site, finally sort of, because I felt guilty, of course, I felt somehow responsible for what had happened to her. And once that guilt could be released, I actually had a, I went and had a conversation with her in uh, some other realm, what, however you want to describe it. And once I could lift the guilt, then the fear around it left and I could start talking about it with other people. And then it was now it, it, it was just a difficult experience and I'm not the only one who's, who has experiences like this. Other people do too. And, and you stop feeling alone with it or somehow feeling like I was the only one that's ever had this happened to. And that's where the transformation starts. The, the, the change of how you perceive yourself in the world begins to happen from that acceptance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause you, before her death, I mean, she was doing everything correct. And, yeah. you know, doing what you're supposed to do, go out of college, do get the good grades, have a good job, just, you know, be a good person and right. look what it did, you know? Yeah. yeah, it was, I mean, she was not only, she was like, uh, you know, a valedictorian of her university. She was, she was on special scholarships to the university wow. that she then went to for her master's degree. She was extremely beautiful, funny, uh, athletic. There was just, you know, just likable everything that what did you could say this is what a great what a great package of a person and uh then yeah okay so now she's gone and a whole lot of people who are acting in the 
in a completely self-important, narcissistic, useless, nasty way, smoking 40 cigarettes a day, whatever. Well, they're still living. So yeah. if if extended life is is supposed to be a goal of what you're doing here, like not dying is supposed to be one of your goals, then obviously, like you say, all of these rules we had been taught about how to live don't make they, they don't have anything to do with that at all then. And so if you start to realize, well, then I don't know when it's going to happen. It could happen 50 years from now. It could happen next week. Why don't I do what I want to do? Why am I going to wait to do the things I wanted to do? And similar to you, if that was right about the same time, I started saying there's this is the way everybody works and does things in the world. Around the same time, I was in, I was standing at a train uh, subway station at like eight in the morning. I don't, I don't know why I was there at eight in the morning. Probably, you know, coming home from some girl's house or something. I was going home, <laughs> but the doors opened and all of the business people came off to go to work in their suits and their and their and their briefcases. And they, I looked in their eyes and it looked the same as I saw a documentary of cattle going to get slaughtered. That was the look. And I remember saying to myself, I will never do that, ever. There is no way I'm going to put myself through that world, even though that's the world I'm supposed to do. Nope. And that even meant like my, my mother tried to push me to being a history teacher because what else you do with a history degree? You know, there's, what do you do with that? Nothing. You're pretty much a teacher. It's useless. But I felt I would be in, I'd be in the same meat grinder. I would be in the slaughterhouse if I went and do I would be controlled as to what I could think, what I could say, what I could teach, what I could not teach. I don't want to do that. And of course, life got very hard because I've life had been set up in a particular direction. All of that had been pulled out from under me and I got nothing. But at least I could say, but at least I wasn't there. And I think that's part of that death experience, similar to what you had. This this re, part of it is the realization of what is it then do I really want? If I'm still here, if I'm if I'm if death is not taking me now, but could take me soon, what is it I really want to do? And that's one of the powers of the, of the gifts. I said death was honest. And one of the honesty death brings, if you really stare into it, is it'll help you know what do you really want? What is most important in your life? It'll, it'll, and it'll tell you, well, do it now. If you have yeah. something you want to say to somebody, if, particularly if it's something nice, go say it to them now. Don't wait till next week. You, you don't know if you or them will still be here. Say it to them now. And, and that's one of the things I do remember after, um, not only Joan's death, but like after I had my my own death experience was if I wanted to give someone a compliment, even if I had never met them before and I just saw them on the street, I gave it to them because it was like, why not? Why not say something nice to somebody? You know, it, it, it can really change you if you allow it to. Yeah. Well, I think in closing, this quote is probably the, the best way to, to, you know, close this off. You have a quote on your website. It says, die while you're alive and be absolutely dead then do whatever you want it's all good and yeah. it, it's a quote, it's by, a quote by Bunyan yeah um, yeah and that's and of course the the death the death of course we're talking about is not the death of the body that's where I got myself mistaken with this idea of suicide right the message the message that was some sort of in my mind was sort of right you know the but the self gets the ego takes the self to mean the body but the self, or the, what, what the, what's really meant is, yeah, this thing I've always thought of as me, this false thing that's been running my life. And if I, say, kill it or another way, just stop listening to it, stop paying attention to this thing that's been turning my life into the garbage can, well, it will, it'll all change. 
you know um it's it's that it's our beliefs and our mind and our conditioning and our perceptions those very things we talked about that are being controlled and manipulated by outside sources and then we control and manipulate them again second we lost you there for a second i don't know if you're still there let's see if you'll come back um, I think the last thing we were talking about was the the quote on your website and uh, die while you are alive and absolute and be absolutely dead. Then do whatever you want. It's all good by Bunyan. Yeah. And I was just sort of referring to the idea that it's, it's, it doesn't mean the body <clears throat> doesn't mean the experience. It means the self, the thing you've always thought yourself to believe or the, the thing that's been controlling your life up to this point most of the time, when that's dead or out of the way, then something much more true is the guiding force of your life. And that's kind of what the quote means, and do what you want. It's all good because it'll be coming from your the truest nature you have, not not a mind uh, concept. Yeah. So it, it's almost like um, having a rebirth, you know. I uh, would no because of the way Bunyan means it. It means that the thing that you thought you were is is uh, seen through. It becomes a ghost. So it's not like there's something new there. It's literally there's nothing there, mm. and the nothing is then everything. So you are now the totality, while at the same time not not um, how to describe it, not pinpointed as being an object in consciousness you're technically all objects then just experiencing through the eyes of this observer well okay <laughs> yeah, it's, it, you, yeah you won't be able to understand it with the mind but if it happens to you you would know exactly what i just said yeah yeah <laughs> wow um well if there's anything else that you'd like to bring up or that you're working on any projects currently uh, well, first, I just wanted to say, I think, uh, thanks for having me on to do the interview. And, you know, um, a lot of interviewers and interview, I don't really know much about until you, you make the offer, but you've done a, I think you're a really good interviewer. I think you're really clear in how you present things and share things. And so I was really pleased to come on and, and talk with you and, and actually meet you. Like I guess I think yeah, you're really you. a really good guy. And I, I'm glad to have made your, had this uh, inter- introduction to you. Yeah, I, I you know after watching your videos, I knew we would click. You probably couldn't get that that same you know message across by looking at my previous videos because it it was all very you know it was all about music and very just methodical and and you know formally laid out. And this season, I wanted to just be really open and conversational and not worrying about time constraints because. Uh, I think before that, that was like the main thing was just, you know, fitting everything in a half hour or, you know, an hour. And I just wanted to have a more just, you know, natural, mm-hmm. you know, between two people, you know? Right. Yeah. Just like you're out having coffee at the coffee shop and it's just, you talk until it's time to go. I, I think since this whole lockdown began, I mean, I just started to really enjoy podcasts and videos. It just, you know, it, you know, the, the longer, the better. Honestly, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, just, I just love the long format and not having yeah. this like structured, like television type stuff. And, 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 you know, the fast videos, I mean, I don't like the flickering and the, the, the jump, uh, um, what they, I forgot what they call it, the, where they jump scenes. 
So there's constantly cutting. And, mm. you know, I feel like that, that just appeals to the people who just have a very uh, short attention span. <laughs> that's what, that's what it's meant to do. Right. Keep yeah. the mind focused on things that it normally would stop focusing on. Right. Jump cuts. That's what it is. Jump cuts. Yeah. Um, when it, when, if there's really something interesting and, and, and riveting, you don't need that. It, it will, it will keep the person's attention because of the content. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you for coming on. It was a pleasure yeah. meeting you and hopefully, you know, the circumstances are different and we can travel across borders and we can actually have a cup of tea together. <laughs> that would be a fantastic thing. You could take me around. There's lots of great things to see in Texas. And it, of course, if anybody wants to check me out, the links I'm sure will be in the description box. It's the easiest place to start is my YouTube site while I still have it. Of course, that at some yeah. point will, will be taken down, but at least for now, it's probably still there and books you can at least get the titles on amazon and things like that and then you can go from there and see if i have things that are interesting and you want to continue listening to what i have to say otherwise it's been yeah i'll, I'll definitely have the links in the description but where else can people find your your material yeah the, the again that's howdy mccoskey talks so far on youtube the website is the very poorly named egyptian-wisdom-revealed.com i think i'll be changing that in the future and um and then you search my name on Amazon, you'll get the books. But on my website, I have more more sample chapters than Amazon does. If you feel like reading a few chapters of it, and, um, emails at the at the uh, website if someone feels you need to get a hold of me. And um, yeah, that's about cool. it. All right. Well, we'll I'll talk at you later, and hopefully, maybe when you have another book, then we'll have you come on again and kind of yeah or at the very least yeah one of us can cross a border and we can go actually sit and <laughs> maybe do it have the camera with both of us sitting there together yeah that'd be good yeah yeah <laughs> all right well you take care and uh thanks for having see you me again on. you're welcome. cheers cheers and there you have it that was uh howdy mccoskey uh please be sure to look him up and support his channel it's uh, howdy mccoskey talks He's got a lot of great videos and just just a lot of great insight if you like podcasts and, you know, just people talking and breaking down wisdom. Uh, definitely a wise person to know and really good person to, to get to meet. I mean, he's pretty incredible and you got to see his personality and he's very... Uh, you know, very approachable. So I, I like that about people. It's it's really easy to talk to someone when they're they don't have this like barrier of attitude. So um, I like realism and, and real people and not a bunch of fakery and and all this like nonsense that we have today. <laughs> so uh, yeah, don't forget to hit that subscribe button, hit that like button, share it, put it on your social media, whatever. Uh, you may see it on uh, Instagram and, and uh, Twitter, and I'll definitely try to get the word out. And um, yeah, stay in touch, make some comments. And uh, if you have a suggestion and you'd like to see a, a person you know on this show, uh, definitely reach out to me. Um, I've already had a couple of suggestions, and I'm going to definitely take that to heart. And uh, yeah, moving forward, I mean, I definitely want to keep doing this. Um, <clears throat> but for now, we have a couple of guests coming up that uh, I think you might like. Though It's more like the music stuff that I used to do, but we're going to do it in this kind of format. So it's more relaxed and not as structured. Um, next week, we have Luke Potter. Uh, like I kind of mentioned in the first episode that uh, I met him when he was about 16. 
and that was like 2012. So it's <clears throat> it's been quite a while, and uh, this is the first time we've we'll have an interview together. And uh, you know, we've been playing his music for a very, very, very long time, and he's got a lot of music that he's had out. And you know, he's an incredible guy and realistic, and you know, just really down to earth. And he's he's from England. And, uh, you know, it's hard to travel these days, but uh, thankfully we have zoom <laughs> and then uh after that we have uh emmanuel sasson she's a incredible music artist and she just uh, released a bunch of songs this year and we've been playing a couple of her music a uh, couple of her songs so i'm excited to have her on and then we have uh alex aller she's a writer in music music artist she produces music and then we have um Eddie Rowley, he's a comedian, he's just a really funny guy. He's just been putting out some incredible content and uh, he's been doing, his latest project, he's been doing like uh, voiceovers on animation and I, I haven't discovered if he does the animation himself, so we're about to find that out. And then of course we have Alex Stein, one of my favorite talk show hosts all of all time. Um, I, he's just funny. And he has incredible guests. He's got, he's got, uh, you know, he's just really looking to interview the the best minds um, on on uh, that are outside of mainstream, because uh, mainstream is just, you know, it's, they're just regurgitating stuff that we already know, and it's nothing new. It's it's all kind of ugh, boring. Um, yeah, people like Alex, I just get, you know, he just gets right in your face and he just, he's not afraid to ask the serious questions and, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's a lunatic and uh, <laughs> he's not ashamed to be one, you know, he, he's a form, I mean, he's a comedian. Oh, my camera. Need to tape that down or something. But uh, yeah, he's a comedian. So you may have seen him. Um, you know, in Hollywood, or you may see him in the future here in Dallas, Texas. And uh, he, he is just funny. Uh, look him up uh, on the conspiracy castle.live. But um, hopefully, we'll have him on whatever day that's, that's available because we're both doing shows and we're both busy. So, as soon as our schedules meet up together, I mean, boom, we're gonna have a show. All right, well, uh, with that said, I like to end this show and can't wait to see you guys next time and uh you know uh thank you for all the comments i mean when i did the show with david weiss i mean there were there were i wasn't expecting as much uh as many positive comments as i did and i'm very thankful and grateful and yeah keep keep talking uh reach out to me when, when you ever have suggestions or you know comment on whatever you hear and and see and if i miss something um you know i'll try to do better next time so a lot of times i i'm on the spot and i have so many things on my mind that i want to ask and it's hard to put everything down on on you know uh, on a sheet of paper ahead of time because I'm, I'm always like thinking of, of a new question or that turns into something else and then when we once we get on the interview it's like it, you, you never know where it leads so that, that's kind of like how i want to do it from here on and just have less structure and like you know i, I don't want it to sound like a boring interview so anyway, I will talk at you later and uh, I'll see you next time.